So first up, commiserations on being passed over again. Yeah, I put so much effort into it this time. I got letters of recommendation from Charles and Brian. Colleagues from all over the world put in their support. Even the universities threw all its resources into it. And still, nothing. Not a peep. Not even a simple letter to say, thanks for trying to get involved. Yeah, it's not a good look, is it? No. I mean, I get it's a very competitive area, and really only a few people ever get shortlisted. But I'm respected in my field. I have history in the area. I even said I'd supply my own wardrobe. But no, there's not even the slightest bit of recognition. It's actually pretty insulting. Yeah, and realistically, the next chance will be in four, maybe five years' time, and I suspect it'll be too late in my career to apply then. This really was my last chance. Well, the BBC's loss is our gain, I suppose. You'll always be my doctor. Thanks. That actually really means a lot, and I do think Shuti Gatwa is a good choice. I'm just gutted to once again not even being considered as a possible next Doctor. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Edison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I'm Josh Edison in Auckland, New Zealand, and in Zhuhai, China, it's Associate Professor of Philosophy and secretly two trench coats wearing a child, Dr. M. R. X. Dentith. I was actually trying to think of a sound effect I could make for that, and I was going, I'm actually, I mean, it would be flapping fabric and maybe the scream of something that's just died. I mean, it's quite a disturbing thought when you think about it. It actually is, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. proud of that one, to be honest. And you're, and you're a parent. Mm. So, my, my, my parental shortcomings aside, we have an interesting episode for you, I assume, this well, I mean, week. I mean, you're doing something... we, we have an episode that we think is interesting. Yes, yes. That's something we haven't done for quite a long time. Uh, we, we've talk, I, 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 There's no point being coy, I suppose. We've actually explicitly said what we're going to be doing in this one a couple of times. We're going to be looking at conspiracy theories in fiction, in our favourite works of fiction, or possibly our favourite conspiracies in works of fiction that we might think are a little bit rubbish. We'll see. Or, indeed, just conspiracies we know of in fiction, whether we like the fiction or not. Mm. Um, so I sort of, when we did this, I thought, oh, we, I remember we did this that one time, years and years ago. And then I looked back and found we've done it three times, sort of. The first time was back in April of 2016, where we did we did an episode that's exactly like the episode we're going to do today. Just a thinly veiled excuse for us to talk about pop culture, which is what we do anyway. But then in August of 2016, we did an episode about works of fiction that inspired conspiracies. And then in January of 2018, I see we did an episode because The Guardian put out a, an article about the top 10 conspiracies in fiction, I think specifically uh, literary fiction in that case. So so I, I thought, I thought, oh, it's been, it's, it's, we've only done this once before. It's not going to be, it's, we're not that unoriginal to do it, you know, six years later. But then it turns out we're slightly less original and it's only really been four years. But whatever. Yeah, so, I mean, the whatever whole I say. once, twice, three times a lady, it's going once, twice, thrice, four times a podcast. It's exactly what it is. That is precisely what it is. I think you've hit the nail on the head so correctly that you better just play a sting and we can get straight into it. So... I thought to begin with, actually, the first thing I would like to say is that I'm still still have a bit of the bit of the COVID rattle left, so I may there may be the occasional coughing fit, which depending where it occurs, M may or may not be able to edit out. I'll just I'll just chuck that out there first, so you're so you're ready for it. Um, but the second thing I wanted to say is that maybe we should quickly run through what we did talk about in those previous episodes, just so that, that to, to save people saying, hang on, how come you never bothered discussing this obvious conspiracy when, in fact, we already talked about it before? That is an excellent idea. It does mean I can go false flag a few times as well. It does. Do you want to do the list or do you want me to do the list? You do the list? Shall I'll alternate do, list. I'll, okay. I'll do, You'll do the commentary. You, yeah, I'll do, I'll do the <laughs> commentary. The colour. Yep. Okay. So we talked about, of course, the Manchurian candidate with a, de a detour into No Way Out. Great Frank Sinatra film. And Salt. Mm -hmm. We talked uh, about actually, the Salt, slash Salt, Salt is not a great Frank Sinatra film. Frank Sinatra hardly appears in Salt. Billy I believe he appears no, no. in an urn in a background shot, but really, frankly, not his best work. 
No, although it did inspire one of the best tweets I've ever seen where someone had the poster, Angelina Jolie is salt, and, and with their comment, oh, and who's Pepper, Renee Zellweger? This is some racist bullshit. But anyway, uh, we talked about The Departed and Infernal Affairs. We talked about Capricorn One and also Moonwalkers, which do a similar thing. Cat now, Capricorn One kind of is, you know, is one of the urtex of conspiracy theory and so. fiction, given that many people think that Capricorn One kind of inspired moon landing hoax conspiracy theories even though they're kind of getting the history wrong there capricorn one was inspired by emergent moon landing hoax conspiracy theories Mm. which indeed is why we talked about it in the second episode but we'll get to that shortly um we talked about dan brown we talked about the x-files and millennium uh, we so, talked so about The Princess Bride. Millennium, a show I'd actually be quite happy to rewatch. The X-Files, not entirely sure I need to go back and revisit. Mm, certainly not the later ones. I remember the earlier seasons. being. Yeah, but I'd rather remember the earlier seasons than revisit the earlier seasons. Well, yes. Yes, the 90s were a different place. But no, we had The Princess Bride. False flag. We had The Long Kiss Goodnight. False flag. To, to, Excellent films that, um, yes, just so happened to feature false flags, we were okay to talk about them. We talked uh, talked about the book Interface, an early one by Neil Stevenson, which he did with George Dewsbury, um, which had, was, was just an interesting example, basically. We talked about the Assassin's Creed universe. At that time, I don't think the Assassin's Creed film had come out yet. So it and the world the was a bit was a better place because of that. It Actually, really the Assassin's is, Creed yeah. universe is interesting because, due to antiquated gaming hardware, the last proper game I played in the Assassin's Creed sequence was Assassin's Creed Rogue, which was kind of the sidequel to Assassin's Creed Black Flag. I now have the hardware to start moving forward through the series again, so I could go to Paris, which is kind of taken to be one of the worst of the recent Assassin's. Creed Creed games. And now I'm told the most recent one, which is set in Viking England, takes about 140 hours to complete. Mm, that's that's a, that's an investment. There, yeah, I it's suppose. an investment I don't think I'm willing to make. Mm, no. Uh, what else did we talk about? Foucault's Pendulum, which will come up again later as well, I think. It will we indeed. talked about the Sleepy Hollow TV series, which was would have been must have been showing at the time, because I'm pretty sure it vanished into the into the ether fairly quickly after. Well, no, so, that was... uh, so I never watched Sleepy Hollow, but I read reviews of Sleepy Hollow and it was one of those shows that kept on getting renewed when people didn't expect it to. So I think it actually ran for about four seasons eventually. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the first season was an enormous amount of fun and it just kept getting weirder and sillier. And then it got to the second season and it's like, yeah, I mean, I think you reached peak silly at the end of the first season. It just didn't didn't seem to... Couldn't hold my interest. I don't know. Uh, we talked about your favourite uh, Stargate disinformation plotline, which is oh yeah, it's Wormhole Extreme. I've actually just finished Ooh. my rewatch of SG One and Atlantis, and about to start my rewatch of Universe. And that is a show replete with conspiracy. For the sheer fact, the central conceit of Stargate is there literally is a portal that takes you to other worlds that the army is keeping secret from the populace. So they have to keep on engaging in the is it actually right that we're keeping the secret from the kids yes the children are wrong kind of reasoning Mm. Mm. um which sort of brought us into various alien invasion conspiracies so we name checked they live v the arrival with charlie Charlie sheen Mm. invasion of the body snatchers and all its various remakes and sequels and what have you uh, and Quatermass 2, which I have not, haven't actually seen. I, f- I feel I should have seen the, the various Quatermasses. So the problem with Quatermass 2 is that the only version of Quatermass 2 that we have is, I believe, the film, and the film version is not considered to be a particularly good adaptation of the TV serial. So... Yeah, it's probably one of those things. It'd be probably better to read the novelization. But then the problem is, Josh, mm. you don't read books. Not a massive fan of them. No, no, I don't know. I'll I'll find some way of overcoming it, perhaps. Um, and then finally, to round things out, we talked about the Constant Gardener, just because it's a, it centres on a sort of a corporate, um, is a pharmaceutical company sort of conspiracy in that, so a slightly different kind. We talked about Watchmen, which is conspiracism, conspiracies ahoy. And we talked about Fight Club as well. 
which is strange because I thought there was a rule against that, but I guess I must have just been imagining that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think mm. I think the rule about Fight Club is you have to always bring Fight Club up. Mm, mm, yeah, that sounds, that sounds much more accurate. So that was it for that episode. And in the second one where we talked about works of fiction that inspire conspiracies, we did mention Capricorn 1 with, with, with as you say, the caveat that it's actually probably not an inspiration, but some people think it is. We talked about, of course, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, uh, the Turner Diaries and the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, which is that what got Dan Brown going, that last one? Yeah, and actually what's interesting about that particular work of fiction is, of course, the authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail, take it, well, they claimed in court it was a historical text and they tried to sue Dan Brown for plagiarizing it. And as the judge pointed out in the trial, either... It's a historical text, so a text of history, and Dan Brown is able to borrow from it because he's writing a historical novel based upon your historical text, or you need to admit it's a work of fiction, and Dan Brown plagiarized ideas from your work of fiction, and the authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail stuck with the, oh, no, 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 it's a a work of history, at which point the judge went, well, you don't really have a case now, do you? You You plagiarize history, no. No. No, no, it's long accepted you can you can base stories on histories because you don't really own histories. No. And then finally in our third article, our third third episode, I suppose, talking about an article of the top 10 conspiracies in fiction, none of which I have read, but some of which you have. Uh, so that covered the Illuminatus trilogy with an exclamation mark. Yeah, which I reread. And I have to say, I did not enjoy the rereading of it. I think, I think it's one of those things. I enjoyed it at the time, but as someone in my mid forties who's a lot more woke than I was in my twenties, it's kind of racist. It's kind of. Mm, I mean, I know, I know it's, I know it's actually trying to poke fun at racism, but unfortunately, it does that poking fun at racism by being racist and it pokes fun at sexism by being a bit sexist and i just don't think it's dated well also it's quite clearly a trilogy where they they knew how to start it but had no idea how to end it oh dear uh so the list continued with libra by don delillo the crying of lot 49 by thomas pynchon 1966 Mumbo Jumbo by Ishmael Reed. So I know of this, but I've never read it. Mm-hmm. The Plot Against America by Philip Roth. Which I think I've read, but I can't recall. I've read a lot of books <laughs> in my time. I, 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 have to, I saw that and thought, isn't he the guy from Reservoir Dogs and stuff? But that, of course, is Tim Roth, and I'm a fool. Um, number six is The Trial by Franz Kafka. A classic. Yes, there's a, very much a classic. Uh, the Book of Daniel by E.L. Doctorow. Haven't read. I little of that. 20, 2666, or possibly 2666, by Roberto Bolaño, 2004. Which I, I also have to say uh, I haven't read. Vida by Marge Piercy, 1980. No, I haven't read and that either. And, of course, Foucault's Pendulum by Umberto Eco. And, of course, there's a lot of conspiracy in Echo's work, from The Name of the Rose to The Prague Cemetery. And, indeed, his latter works all seem to be rehashings of The Prague Cemetery. It was very weird. Very, very weird. Mm. So, anyway, that's that's what we've talked about before. So if you want to hear us talk about any of those works of fiction, uh, you'll have to go back and find those old episodes. And good luck to you, because that was back before we realised we'd be misnumbering them. So I'm not quite sure what they are anyway. I mean, I guess you could just uh, so, search into Podbean and could, look for yeah. fiction. They're probably, mm. I suspect we probably use the word fiction in either the titles or the description. Yes, and indeed, yeah, at the probably. moment, the episodes aren't numbered on the podcast feed anyway that has come up as names because I've given up actually because of the misnumbering scandal and the fact that I really have no idea whether the numbering system we've got works it's just better to only have a kind of unofficial numbering behind the scenes and not confuse people in front of the camera indeed so now uh now we can talk about new stuff um and the first thing uh, new thing I'd like to talk about uh, it turns out it isn't a new thing because the whole reason we we, we um, thought of doing this is because after talking about KGB agents a few weeks ago, I thought we really need to talk about No Way Out 
And I, looking back through those notes, you might have noticed that one of the very first things we talked about in the other episode was the film No Way Out. But I think that was more in passing um, after a discussion of the Manchurian Candidate. But I like No Way Out. Now, I should say, I suppose we should say right at the front, there, there will be spoilers aplenty for everything we talk about. So if you're the sort of person who doesn't like having things spoiled, even though the most recent thing we talk about is possibly more than 10 years old. I'm not sure. Well, Maybe no, not. so we'll but be talking about... the things we're talking yeah. about in many so decades. The stuff we're going to talk about in Doctor Who and Killjoys, some of that mm, is recent, are, but actually most of it kind of reflects that we are two people in our 40s talking about the pop yep. culture we enjoyed in our 20s. Mm. Now, No Way Out, of course, came out in 1987 when I was 11 years old, so I never saw it at the cinemas, but um, I did hear about it and saw it on TV eventually. It's a good one. I, I just like... I like that it's it's just conspiracies conspiracies and conspiracy theories a go go. Um, so a quick a quick summary of the plot. It's um, the, the film is famous for two things. It's famous for the scene where Kevin Costner has sex with Sean Young in the back of a limo, parodied in Hot Shots Part Two, as I recall. Uh, and it's famous for the twist ending, which we'll get to. But uh, so Kevin Costner is an officer in naval intelligence who then goes to work for the Secretary of Defense, played by um, Gene Hackman. And he meets this woman, played by Sean Young, and the two sort of begin a, a, begin a bit of an affair. But it turns out she is actually the mistress of um, Gene Hackman. And uh, so Gene Hackman, suspecting that she's been cheating on him, uh, goes and tries to confront her about this. They fight, and Gene Hackman ends up accidentally killing her. And so at first he's he's going to fall on his sword, but then his devious aide, who, because this is 1987, is a gay man, and in 1987 all gay men were evil in fiction, uh, suggests a different a different tactic. They say, let's let's use this rumor that's always been this rumor or conspiracy theory, if you will, that's been going around the CIA that. Um, there's this KGB sleeper agent who we've codenamed Yuri inside the CIA that's, that's always just sort of been rumoured that, that, that the KGB managed to get a sleeper in. But let's say that the guy that killed her was actually Yuri, and then, A, we can make it a matter of national security to track down this guy who she was cheating on you with, and then, B, we can make sure that he isn't taken alive when we come to arrest him, and then we can just blame everything on him. He's the scapegoat, and it all works out nicely. Now, wouldn't you know it, the person they put in charge of the investigation to find out who this person is, who they're going to stitch the whole thing on, is Kevin Costner. And so then he has to juggle trying to to run this investigation that he knows is going to implicate him and knowing that he's being set up, um, while also trying to, figure, to, to uh, find evidence to prove that Gene Hackman all did it and everything. And um, so there's, there's sort of, um, from the start, we have the, the 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 mundane conspiracies of people conducting affairs and cheating on people with other people. We have the conspiracy theory of a KGB sleeper agent inside the CIA, which is then used as fuel for the conspiracy between Gene Hackman and his the guy playing his aide, and then Kevin Costner's busy conspiring against them. It all comes out in the wash. He manages to find evidence that, that, that sort of ties Gene Hackman to Sean Young, which would implicate him. They pin everything on the, on the gay man, because once again, it's 1987 and gay people are evil, and, and it's all sort of sorted out. And then right at the very end... Kevin Costner's sitting there looking sad when he's approached to a bunch of people who start talking to him in Russian and and saying what the heck went on with that whole affair. And it turns out that Kevin Costner actually was a KGB mole inside the CIA. And so the people who'd been trying to frame him as a mole turned out they were right without even knowing it. So then there was the extra conspiracy theory of... of, of um, or the extra conspiracy of KGB people inside the CIA. It's just... It's it's conspiracy theories all the way down. It's a classic Jean-Paul Gaultier paradox. So, so, yes. That's where you're accidentally right about French avant-garde fashion. Precisely. That's where you're accidentally right because you did the costumes for The Fifth Element. And and you co-hosted Eurotrash. Ah, Euro... God, does anybody but the two of us remember Eurotrash? That was... I mean, it was made in England. Formative memory at university. 
very mm. formative. Mm. And also, French unfortunately, though. has never helped my cliche of French people because I just always assumed for the first half of watching that series that they were two English people pretending to be French because they were being so outrageously French with their accents. And then to my no, you do realize it actually is Jean-Paul Gaultier. Okay, so, oh, mm. he's he's as French as I think a French person should be. Yep. Now I don't know what a French stereotype is. Exactly. Yeah, no, Jean-Paul Gaultier talks like a non-French person doing a comedy French accent. Apparently the other guy put Antoine Ducone. Yep, that's the guy. Put his, put his accent on, like sort of Frenched up his accent. But um, yes. Uh, anyway, anyway, that was my first one. Do you want to do one? Yeah, let's actually. So one which you listed, but of course I watched all the way to the end. Lost, Lost, Lost. and the as you say, the accursed mystery box style of shows that inspired. Now, in your list here, you've got Outer Range, which I have not watched and probably won't watch because things like Lost kind of did turn me off the mystery box style of shows. Yellow Jackets is the other one which everyone's talking about. The the kids who get oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Get stranded in the wild. And there's obviously mm. something that went down because the adults are covering up something that happened during that time of stranding. But of course you then have things like Fringe and of course the Accursed Heroes, great first season, everything after that, kind of terrible. And they're all they're all about having a central mystery, which has someone or some set of people who know more than the audience and just slowly unpacking the conspiracy piece by piece in a way which is meant to look as if it's building up to some exciting endgame. And then when you get there, you go, well, that was really not worth the journey. So, Josh, how much of Lost did you end up watching in the end? Oh, bugger all. I watched some of the first season, and that might have been it, really. It, I, it, it never really held my interest, and when it became obvious fairly early on that they were just kind of making things up as they go, and they were going to just spin things out and never actually answer anything for as long as they could possibly put it off. Um, I hear <clears throat> I mentioned out of range because I I hear that that's the one that's that's like um, in in the states in in sort of cowboy territory. Which it's and got mysterious, Josh Brolin in it. Josh Brolin. Yeah. It involves a mysterious bottomless hole opening up in a field somewhere and people who fall into it travel through time or something. But I'm, yeah, I, I, I hear the first season essentially ends with someone showing up saying, I can explain everything. And then the series, the, then it ends. So they don't actually explain anything. And it's, it's just more of the oh, mysterious is stuff is happening. If you, if you watch, you might find out what it is, but you probably won't. Actually, so before I think it's, that, yeah. Well, it's, it's just, there's, there's, it, it can be done well and it can be done badly. And I think it's done badly when they start without actually knowing what their own mystery is, which seemed to be the case with Lost. They sort of had a bit of a framework of some stuff, but then didn't really seem to have any sort of an end game. So I'm going to come back um, to Lost, but I, I need to ask a question. Did you watch Alcatraz? No. Which one was that? So that was the Sam Neill... Prisoners from Alcatraz disappeared in what appeared to be a miraculous breakout from the prison, but actually it turns out that they've reappeared in the current day as if no time has passed. And so there's a, a special team which is based in a hidden basement in Alcatraz who are trying to get the prisoners back. So mm. it's a... Did you, oh, so doing that, did you ever watch a show called The Lost Room? Yes, I liked The Lost Room. Yeah. Was so fun. it's basically trying to make The Lost Room, but with people rather than objects. So all the prisoners have some kind of weird or mysterious power, and they want to basically put them back in the box and resolve whatever the event was that allowed them to get out. And that was taken to be the next Lost. And I think the problem was, A... The ending of Lost burnt a lot of people. So suddenly advertising a new show as being it's the next Lost was a way of people going, hmm, yeah, but Lost 
didn't really end very well, so I don't really need to see another one, which is what I think is going to be the problem with the new Game of Thrones prequel series. Mm. A lot of people will be thinking, yeah, but Game of Thrones ended kind of terribly, so why do we need another one? And also, the actual first few episodes of Alcatraz were kind of awful. They were, actually, I say mm. kind of awful, they were just frankly very awful. But Lost is interesting because... First season, great. Second season, which I think was when the writer's strike occurred, kind of paddling in place. Third season starts doing interesting things, actually becomes quite interesting from season four onwards. And then the last season is terrible because, for some reason, even though What's-His-Face had left the show early on to go off and do his Star Trek films and his Star Wars films and stuff like that. The writers who were left were going, oh, J.J. Abrams had a final episode in mind. We're going to keep to that final episode, even though it makes no narrative sense given where the show has gone. So they spend the entire last season basically forcing the narrative arc of the show away from where it was going to the ending that J.J. Abrams originally came up with, rather than going, well, J.J. Abrams isn't here anymore. We could just end the show our own way. And what's particularly interesting, having said it's already interesting, is there's a fan edit of the last season of Lost, which basically reduces the show down to about eight episodes, cuts out a lot of the annoying plot lines the flash sideways and the like and actually it works so someone has managed to take the last season of lost edit the last season down into something which turns out to be a perfectly adequate ending to the show after all so there was there was enough there to get to the end they just completely ruined it Mm. Actually, one of the things about Lost that, that caused me to give up on it quite early was that the involvement of Carlton Cuse, who was one of the, who was an executive producer and one, the, the joint showrunner with Damon Lindelof, because Carlton Cuse was the showrunner on The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., which was a one of my favorite shows. Show one of my absolute favorite shows. I love dearly, um, which had a mystery thing, which fortunately the show wasn't sort of built around as much, but it had this mysterious, it was, it was a sort of early weird West thing. It was the a, a Western show. The orb. It has this, this magical orb with supernatural powers. And um, I had the Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. set on DVD, which had a bunch of DVD extras. And um, one of them is an interview with all the writers and Carlton Cuse. And at one point, one of the writers says to Carlton Cuse, so, so Carlton, what was the all begin? And he's like, oh, it was a, uh, it was a thing with the, uh, and sort of trails off. The, the whole joke being that he introduced this mysterious thing with no plan, with no idea of what it actually was, just having it being a thing to drive the plot forward. And I thought, okay, so that's, that's the way he does things. That, that's, that, that's not a good sign for Lost. I did think, though, the comparison... I think one of the reasons why Heroes did so well in its first season was that it seemed to learn the lesson of Lost. It was really really the anti-Lost in its first season. It would bring up mysteries and then resolve them quickly, or it would sort of set things up, and then later when, when something would happen, you could look back at the earlier episodes and say, aha, they were working towards that, whereas Lost would either introduce mysteries and just sort of forget about them or trail off or would introduce some amazing new twist and then sort of say and it's actually been behind all the stuff all along but that that was the first time that it was mentioned and that obviously just sort of bolted it on so i think so Heroes because you was didn't nice... watch lost you probably don't know about the infamous jack's tattoo episode i do not know so the actor who played jack matthew i can't remember his last Perry? name no that's chandler yeah that's say, <laughs> that would be a very different show if chandler was mm. in was in lost he had a tattoo and they decided they were going to give the tattoo a backstory in lost so they devote an entire series of flashbacks to when he gets his apparently cursed tattoo in thailand and people were going this is obviously a case of a show spinning its wheels where they've decided to spend 42 minutes explaining why a character has a tattoo. 
Hmm. Was there a deep and significant meaning? It never came up again. It never came up again. Right. So, yes. Actually, I have to say, I'm a slight hypocrite in that I did make a point of keeping up with what was going on on Lost by, like, reading episode summaries on the internet. So I did kind of want to... There was sort of a sick fascination in seeing it spinning its wheels and stuff like that, but I certainly wasn't going to watch the episodes to find out, but I did actually sort of stay clued in on on a bunch of what was going on. And, of course, the Um, other one which you've got on the list is Fringe. How much of Fringe did you watch? Uh, I didn't watch the last season, which was obviously a a case of... A very good idea. It was obviously a case of they're like, they're like, okay, this will be the last season. We'll wrap up all the plot lines. And then they're like, hey, we've renewed you for another season. And they went, oh, shit, what are we going to do now? And, uh, yeah, so the first couple of episodes in, I was like, okay, no, this is, this is not worth the trouble. I'm going to pretend it ended at the last season, and that's that. Yeah, no, I, I enjoyed Fringe, and Fringe did have a really nice conspiracy. And that it was a small-scale mm. conspiracy. It was basically two scientists hiding the fact that they had created a bridge from one version of reality to another. And then the fact that, despite the fact they were hiding this, it was actually was causing huge effects to the other universe, which was beginning to break down because the bridge wasn't adequately closed. And so the way that the conspiracy kind of just generally expanded as government agencies found out about the problem and then tried to resolve it. And as you put in the notes, it kind of showed how Lost could have been done, which is kind of ironic given it was also started by J.J. Abrams. Mm. Yeah, it did seem to have learned some lessons. But yeah, that that was a good one where a few episodes in, they introduced the, the concept of these observers, these weird bald people who just sort of stand there watching and appear to have mysterious powers and then mention that they've always been watching things and then you could go back to the previous episodes and realize you could you could actually find one of these guys in a background scene of every episode before that which was and then they ruined you know, the observ- the, observers by making them the villains of the last season of the last season yes yes so the, the less said about that the better but anyway uh oh and of course we ha- we can't go past the f- that single episode with peter weller yeah, I was going to bring that up. That's actually one of the best time travel one episodes, of the best episodes in American yeah. science fiction. Mm, mm, look it up. So, what now? I might, might as well bring up the other one, my other excuse for doing this, which is Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Which I uh, watched yes, again with you my and kids your, recently. You and your obsession with what happened to the streetcars in LA. Yeah, well, because a, a, a decent chunk of the plot of Who Framed Roger Rabbit turns out to be based on the General Motors streetcar conspiracy, which is sort of the idea that General Motors and other companies um, essentially bought up a bunch of public or mass transit systems specifically to close them down so that America's main form of transport would be the automobile. Now, um, it's a which shame I that don't... you have never had a chance to talk with Brian Alkeely because Brian mm-hmm. actually has some scuttlebutt about this particular conspiracy theory that goes actually a lot more complicated and slightly well, that's less what I conspiratorial hear, yes. than mm. than it is generally accepted to be. Yeah, yeah. Now my understanding is that it is more complicated than that, but um it's something people talk about and it's it's certainly who friend Roger Rabbit takes a spin on it. We're we're in we're the bad guy. Um, it turns out the company that he owns bought up the the red car in in Los Angeles and specifically to shut it down because because he saw the future and the future is is freeways and lots of lots of car traffic and stuff like that. It's it's all a little bit silly, but it's apparently I have a quick read up just to see um, just to make sure I'm not wrong and that it was officially blamed on that. And they said um, apparently that they based those sort of the, the conspiracy bits of the plot a little bit on the film Chinatown, which also is based around that stuff. So I think I, I don't know if it was directly based on the the GM conspiracy or whether it was based on things that were based on the conspiracy. It definitely now I do want to point out Christopher Lloyd there. seems very much like two trench coats stuck in the skin of a child in that film. He very much does in that film. Yes, yes. Mm. I think didn't the Zemeckis got him because he had already directed him in Back to the Future, and I think Christopher Lloyd wasn't convinced that he'd be a good bad guy, but he, I, I think he made a very good one. Oh, yeah. No, chilling mm. performance. 
in that Indeed. he always seems slightly odd before the reveal of what he actually mm. is. And they go, oh, of course. Suddenly, that a lot of his movements and the way he acts makes complete sense. Mm. Um, now, here's one maybe you can tell me about. Um, just as I was, I was thinking up things about this, I then realised that the, the series Gaslit is on TV right at the moment, which is all about Watergate, but I understand it's based on the Slow Burn podcast, which I haven't listened to, but you have, is that right? So, yes, so it's based on a story in the Slow Burn series on Watergate, and unfortunately I've completely forgotten the name of the person it's about, which is the wife of one of the conspirators in the Watergate cover-up. Actually, no, sorry, it's not, not the wife. She was a, sorry, a socialite at the time who basically found out about the conspiracy and then was gaslit by everyone involved to make it seem as if she was mad and had no idea what was going on. And so the show is about the gaslighting of someone who knew what was going on was trying to tell people what was going on, and the authorities made out that she was a drunk, she was an unreliable narrator, she was having domestic issues in such a way that no one would take her seriously. I was hoping that mm. was uh, typing in the background she was trying to get the the, the person's name for me because it's just com- gone out of my head completely. Yep. Martha Mitchell, That's who the was one. the wife of John Mitchell, who was the Attorney General under yep. Nixon. There we go. Yes. Now, I haven't watched any of the episodes of Gaslit that have been released uh, at present. I understand there's a lot of sort of there's comedy essentially in these serious nineteen um, sixties men sitting around, obviously being incompetent idiots um, and yet getting away with stuff because it's the sixties. And and if some dame accuses you, you can just say she's a she's a drunk and probably probably got one of those uteruses that's wandering all over her body like Socrates said, you know. You know? Oh, sorry, I was just mm. thinking Socrates. He he mm. I mean, when I want to know how women work, I always consult my I go to the ancient di- 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 dialogues. I don't I don't think there's a single woman in any any of the Socratic dialogues at all. I uh, would be surprised if there were, yes. Um yeah, so I, I sort of almost thought, oh, should, should we wait until all of Gaslit has come out and then we could include that here? But I thought, no, no, we're doing this and we're doing it now. Gaslit can just come later, I suppose. Do you want to do Killjoys then? I, I watched I watched some of the first season of Killjoys and quite enjoyed it, but I think I was sort of watching other series at the time and it fell by the wayside and I never got back into it. So Killjoys is a recent Canadian science fiction show. I think it ended about two years ago now after a five-year run. It starts off as being a somewhat slight and inconsequential callback to 80s-style science fiction. So it's about I thought it was trying a... to be a bit of a, bit of a serenity substitute for people who never got over that show's cancellation? Kind of. I mean, the thing was, I actually never liked Firefly. So I'm so the fact that I like Killjoys, I'm just not seeing the comparison here, yeah, but that might just be because... It was roguish people in space. Yeah, yeah. So it's about, it's about three mercs who work for a police agency who basically call in marks. The first season is very much about going on individual missions and the realization that there's something going on in the background, which may be involving the higher echelons of the company they work for. And eventually you start getting this quite elaborate conspiracy plot line about there being this green goo that if people get infected by it, they become somewhat non-human. They lose emotional responses, basically, and gain super strength. And the fact that there appears to be a kind of plot to get the green goo into as many people as possible. But then you also discover that there are some people infected with the green goo who are somehow able to resist the conditioning of the green goo, who are trying to destroy the green goo. And then the plot gets even more complicated as you find out that characters have backstories which indicate that they're clones of characters who have been infected with green goo in the past and the like. And it's just... It's so elegantly plotted on a season-by-season basis. So whilst there is a kind of overall plot arc to all five years, each season builds towards a conclusion 
sets up a new status quo and then the next season moves from that status quo on to the next one. Also, each season features a major character, or sorry, a major side character being killed off. And by the time you get to season three or four, you're going quite like all the side characters i don't really want them to kill off this particular character and so you get invested as you move towards the end going who are they going to kill this time because i i don't think i'm very happy with them killing all of these people so yeah well worth well worth watching it's got a delightful kind of green or gray goo conspiracy theory about infiltration of the echelons of corporate and governmental interests and then of course the reveal as to exactly what's going on it also has the perfect ending for a show in that they resolve the major plot line and then they strongly suggest actually their adventures are going to continue we're just not going to be watching them so the characters continue doing the thing they do best and you go well that's good i mean they achieve the end. Now they get to live life happily ever after. Mm. Yeah, it's barely, barely relevant to what we're talking about, but um, Forever, the one with Johan Griffith, I thought had the best first season finale I've ever seen in that it works as a the end of chapter one. If they were to get a second season, they could continue it well, but it also acts as a a nice sort of ending point and as it turned out it never did get renewed so it made a, a very nice ending to the whole season which one was forever again the one where Yoan griffith is is immortal and every time he dies he reappears in a body of water somewhere else and there's a and judd hirsch plays his son who he adopted in world war ii and who is now looks old enough to be his father and there was the evil immortal who's just messing with him because he's hundreds of years older and has just sort of got bored with life and figures might as well just be evil. See, to my mind, the show which only got one season had a perfect ending and I would love to have seen more was Wonderfalls. Yeah, I never got into that one. I think oh, I... Wonderful show. Was that... Which one's Wonderfalls and which one's Joan of Arcadia? Because they both sort of blurred together for me. So Wonderfalls stars Caroline de Havanas as someone who works in a tourist store and then one day inanimate objects start talking to her, telling her to do things. And she doesn't really want to do the things they tell her to, but they won't shut up. Right. And Joan of Arcadia is where she thinks she's getting messages from God to things or i don't know i didn't watch i i never watched joan of arcadia unfortunately i think it ended up going on for longer than wonderfalls did Mm. anyway back on conspiracy so the first time round we talked about alien invasion as a genre which is always full of conspiracies but of course crime crime films and and heist films are another genre where you just can't do them without having them full of conspiracies and possibly counter conspiracies and conspiracy theories um, the ones I find interesting about that are the ones where the you end up with plot holes due to the fact that you don't get to see them planning the conspiracy and sort of find out things afterwards. So, I mean, there's the famous plot hole that everybody likes to talk about in Die Hard, where um, the criminal they 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 have to they they've got the three they've got they've drilled through a bunch of locks, but then there's the electromagnetic locks sealing the vault shut that they have no way of opening. But it turns out that no, no, Hans was was had a plan all along, and he was counting on the fact that the FBI would shut power to the building, which would turn off the electromagnetic lock, and then everything would work out. But the people always point out this was a meticulously planned operation. And yet nobody but Hans Gruber knew that this thing was going to happen. So there must have been at some point in the planning where they're like, okay, so we're going to get through these. Then there'll be the electromagnetic lock we have to get through. How are we going to do that? And Hans Gruber said, oh, don't worry about that. It'll be a surprise. And these other hardened criminal mercenaries like, oh, I love surprises. Okay, let's wait and find out what happens. You see, I was uh, thinking more about the ambulance hidden in the van the van yes, who in an yeah. earlier shot we know is empty Completely. so it must have been, a, to, to be must have been a, a great kit set or inflatable ambulance they're mm. able to construct very quickly i have to say um i've seen die hard many many times it wasn't until i saw a documentary about die hard this year might have been last year where someone pointed out that 
plot hole that I actually noticed it in the first place. And as they they were sort of they talk about how the fact that they were sort of writing the film as they went a little bit and it got to the point with okay so hang on what's their getaway plan and someone said okay how about they have a they, there's a van in the back of their truck and that's or like an ambulance thing and they're going to get out on that and they say okay sweet and so they write in a scene where a van drives out of the back of the truck and then they were watching a test screening and somebody and then somebody noticed right at the start as you say there is a shot where you see them getting out of the back of the truck and there is clearly nothing inside it except for them and their guns and someone's like, oh, God, that's a big plot hole. And the guy basically said, nobody's going to notice. By the time they get to the end of the, if we've made a good enough film, nobody's going to care, which I think is... Which is true. And also, it's not, it's not as if people had VHS tapes to go back and mm. slowly scroll through the footage in those days. It's the kind of continuity error that we notice now because you can just instantly rewatch scenes or go back to the to the beginning by the time you get to the end of that roller coaster of a film it's basically gone now the other thing to note because yeah. we talked about Frank Sinatra this was meant to be a Frank Sinatra vehicle it was yeah it was what well, it was technically was it a sequel it's based on a book for one yeah. thing yeah so it's a sequel it to a an, much more Frank Sinatra like yeah. character yeah yeah so it's a sequel so because, to a film that Frank Sinatra had been in. So ostensibly, if they had actually made it as a straight sequel, the Bruce Willis character, you'd get Frank Sinatra saying, yippee Kaye," which I think would, or mm. as you know, it would be Frank Sinatra singing, yippee Kaye." yippee ki Yes. Uh, no, so that worked out nicely. But um, no, I've heard, I've heard multiple sort of screenwriters talk about the fact that every film has plot holes and it's not necessarily about avoiding plot holes it's about making the story engaging enough that people don't care about the plot holes which um which actually brings me to the other one i wanted to talk about in this vein which was man on a ledge did you see that one i did not i was initially thinking man on a ledge was man on a wire which would be a very different film although probably quite, quite a different film Hmm. No, Man on a Ledge, it's a, it's a sort of low-budget heist film. Um, Sam Worthington plays the, the titular man on the ledge, um, and the whole point is he's, he's standing on the ledge of a, of a tall building as a distraction, and so while the police are, are trying to talk to him and, and get him down from off of this ledge, his two accomplices are busy, are busy heisting their asses off at a nearby building breaking into this vault. And it's, it's a good film. I actually quite enjoyed it, which is why the massive plot hole at the end of it, like, it was a case where the plot hole was so big that even though I was enjoying the film, I had to go, hang on a second. Because um, basically he's he's got an earpiece in, so he's in communication with his his two, um, two uh, accomplices. And as they're busy breaking into this, this vaulty place, um, at one point they come across a sensor which wasn't on their plans and they're not ready for it. And so they're busy talking to him. Uh, they ask him, okay, there's a sensor here. We don't know what to do. And um, it's, all a, it's all a wacky scene because he's talking with a police officer at the same time. And so he's trying to sort of speak in coded terms so that they know what he's talking about, but the police officer doesn't realize he's giving instructions to his accomplices. But he basically tells them that it's a temperature sensor and they need to do something clever. I can't really like spray it with a fire extinguisher or something. They, they do something to mask their temperatures so that they're able to get past the sensor and continue on into the vault. Now, at the end of the film, they do the typical heist thing where it looks like everything's gone wrong. The, the, the alarms go off. Everybody rushes in. It looks like the heist has failed. But then it turns out that's what they wanted all along because although they could get into the place, the actual vaulty bit that they really wanted to get into, which was owned by the bad guy of the film, they didn't have a way into that. So the whole point of was to break in, trigger the alarms so that when he comes in to, to, to open the vault to check that none of his stuff has been stolen, then they can get the drop on him and get it. And so when this is all revealed, you realize it, they show you how they deliberately triggered their own alarms, and it was by placing a bunch of heat packs under that heat sensor. And at that point, it was like, hang on, the heat sensor that you spent quite a bit of time establishing they didn't know was there, and yet now you're telling me their plan hinged on the fact that they were going to set that sensor off with a bunch of heat packs that they brought with them. 
it, it was it was such a jarring sort of a hang on that doesn't even make a little bit of a sense that it, it took me right out of the whole thing. It's quite strange. So you another case where if you'd seen Sam mm-hmm. Worthington as a movie star, and apparently we're going to get four more Avatar films with oh, him God, as yes. the star. Mm. But yes, uh, another film where if you'd actually seen the planning of the conspiracy, it suddenly wouldn't would, it would have been obvious that it didn't make any sense from the start. Hmm. Hmm. I also, I must bring up at this point though the film Bound, uh, the film that, that that the Wachowskis did that gave them the clout to make the Matrix, um, which was was notable at the time for basically being a lesbian love story, and so most of the commentary was was for girl on girl action. But what I really like about that film is that it's one of the few cases where some conspirators come up with a plan that involves a person who they have no control over acting in exactly the way they predict. They make their plan, they execute it, and the person acts in a completely different way and their plan totally turns to crap and they have to scramble to save themselves. Because there are so many other films out there that seem to involve someone where people, either the good guys or the bad guys, are able to predict exactly what the other person is going to do in this situation. And, I mean, and, think and about all of the right. Oceans films. Every single mm. Oceans film is predicated on the fact that, and I can't remember his first name, but it's called Jimmy Ocean. Jimmy Ocean is mm. able to accurately predict how people are even going to breathe in a particular room. Mm. Or uh, the Mission Impossible ones, the later ones. Anyway, I watched the most recent one, and that bugged the crap out of me because every every sequence was they come up with a plan, the plan falls apart, and they have to improvise a whole bunch of crazy stuff, and then at the end of it, the bad guy pops up and is like, ha-ha, that's exactly what I wanted you to do. You've fallen into my trap. And it's like you, they were, they, you had no way of knowing they were going. They didn't even know they were going to do that, and yet somehow this was all, all according to your plan. It just and it, it, and it sort of kept doing that. And then at the end, the bad the good guys do that to the bad guy. When the bad guy does something, and suddenly the good guys pop up, and it's like, aha, that's exactly what, what we wanted you to do. It just really bugged me, to be honest. I watched the most Tom recent Cruise Bond film the other day. Which one was that? Oh, is that the one where he dies? No Spoilers. time to die. No, no time, no time to, to die. die. It's very long. It's mm. very, very mm. long. It's incredibly long. Actually, the, the earlier one, uh, is it, which is the one with Rami Malek in it? No, no, that is No Time to Die. Oh, that is, that oh, is, that must, that be is the one Javier, must be the one with Javier Bardem in it, where he's able to sort of exactly predict where Bond's going to be and is able to launch subway cars through walls at him or something. I, that, that, yeah. That one seemed to have a, a bad guy with a meticulous level of planning that didn't actually appear to be in any way possible. I mean, it's the problem of escalation in films like this. You need to mm. make each villain more impressive than the last, which means you have to kind of make them more godlike than the last. And then you get to, as you say, being able to go, aha, I predicted you'd do this particular thing. Yeah, but I, I had no... I oh, know, but I predicted you'd have no idea that you knew what you were doing. And that's how I was able to predict you'd do the thing even you didn't know you were going to do. Mm. Or much like the show Sherlock, where by the end of the final season, they've sort of raised it to... No, these people have actual superpowers. Like Sherlock Holmes has his powers of deduction, Mycroft has super deduction, and then their hidden sister... Is is actually an X Men villain. It was just um, quite quite a bizarre progression. Yeah, Moriarty is able to predict how Holmes is going to act after Moriarty's death. Which actually, mm. one thing we haven't talked about: the grand conspiracy that is the Saw films. Yeah, I've never watched a full Saw film. I have to say. So I've watched all of the Saw films at least twice, apart from the most recent one with Chris Rock, which isn't actually technically a Saw film. It's Spiral from the Book of Saw, so it's kind of a a side story. And whilst I kind of love the way that they've been able to retroactively make a giant conspiracy from the Jigsaw Killers' weird... And I mean, it is weird. They try to make out he's got this kind of ethical mechanism for how he punishes particular people, even though he just appears to be cruelty through and through. You do have in the Jigsaw Killer someone who is able to not just predict what his protege is going to do when he dies, 
but how his protege's protege is going to react when she dies, leading to his other protege getting revenge on his protege's protege, and then also finding a backup plan so his wife is going to be able to deal with a protege's protege to ensure the other protege is able to deal with another protege. And you're going, wow. I mean, you probably could have had a very successful career working for the intelligence agencies, but instead you decided you wanted to build death traps instead. I mean, it's a lifestyle. It is a lifestyle. It's a choice. Right, well, we're coming up to the end of the usual length of an episode we'd do, so maybe we should get into your last one, which is, of course, Doctor Who. Yes, good old Doctor Who. So there are actually quite a lot of conspiracy plot lines in Doctor Who. I'm only going to focus here on the conspiracy theories and conspiracy plot lines involving the Time Lords. Because one thing which we discover from the fourth Doctor onwards is that Time Lord society is very secretive and actually quite corrupt. So we don't even find out about the Doctor's people until the end of the second Doctor's run. So in the war games, the Doctor gets into a situation such he has to get in contact with his people, and we discover his people are all time travellers like himself. They've got the ridiculous name of the Time Lords, which somehow has managed to go from being the most ridiculous name for a people to something that kind of works within the canon. We get a little bit of Time Lordy stuff under the third Doctor. So Time Lord tells the Doctor that the Master is around the place at the beginning of the second series for John Pertwee. We get with the three Doctors an attack upon the Time Lord planet, which I don't think is even named in that episode. And the Time Lords kind of give the Doctor back his ability to travel through time. And then in The Deadly Assassin, the first time the Doctor ever visits his home planet of Gallifrey in the TV series, we get a conspiracy by the Master and Chancellor Goth to frame the Doctor for the murder of the President of the Time Lords. So you get a large, not a large scale, you get a small scale conspiracy of the Doctor's biggest nemesis and a member of the Gallifreyan High Council involved in a conspiracy to give the master back his life force because the master has regenerated now too many times and is about to die by framing the doctor in such a way that the doctor's investigation of what happened is going to allow the master to get access to time lord relics that will allow him to gain life force back using the power source of the planet and this basically starts off an entire run of conspiracy centric time lord storylines so with a few seasons later we get the invasion of time where the doctor returns to gallifrey and is involved in a conspiracy to stop an invasion by double bluffing every single person in the story. So initially we think that the invasion of Gallifrey is one particular alien race. That turns out to be a double bluff and it's another alien race. And the doctor appears to be working with that alien race, but actually he's working against them to find out who the original alien race that wants to invade the planet happens to be so it ends up being conspiracies within conspiracies then a few seasons later with peter davidson and the five doctors we get the discovery that there's been a conspiracy in time lord society to hide the dark history of the early dark ages of the time lords and the fact that in the old days they used to enjoy having games of death where they would pit people against enemies from out of time and it turns out that the new president of the time lords is basically working with various dark powers to cause issue for the doctor we get with remembrance of the daleks the suggestion that the doctor was actually one of the main characters in that dark history of the Time Lords. So the Doctor's involved in a conspiracy to cover up the fact that he's a lot older and more than just a Time Lord. And so in the classic series, we get every single time the Time Lords come up post-Tom Baker, a realisation that actually Time Lord society is just a naturally conspiratorial one. 
And that's kind of continued with the modern series. So Russell T. Davies had the idea that the master himself or herself, now that we've got the, the Missy Master duality, was created by Time Lord society in order to ensure that the Time Lords would survive the Time War by allowing the Master to escape Gallifrey during the Time War so that when Gallifrey was destroyed, they'd be able to use the Master as a way to track themselves through time to avoid the consequences of the end of the Time War, which of course then got rebooted under Stephen Moffat, where it turned out that there was a conspiracy by the Doctors to save Gallifrey from the end of the Time War entirely by basically forgetting that they had set up a system to move Gallifrey out of the way of the Dalek invasion fleet. And under Chris Chibnall, we now have a new conspiracy where it turns out that the Doctor isn't even a Time Lord, but comes from another universe entirely, and Time Lord society is based upon her DNA, which created the ability for Time Lords to regenerate, and Time Lords have been keeping that secret from her in perpetuity. Mm. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't watched the most recent. Se- <coughs> there are the coughs. I've been waiting for them to show up. <clears throat> I haven't watched the most recent seasons of it. To be honest, I think I was just a little bit all doctored out um, with Peter Capaldi. I started watching the Jodie Whittaker ones, and um, my interest just kind of just kind of slightly drained away. I'm not really sure why. Um, but yes, the, the whole timeless child thing seemed seemed, seemed like quite a swerve. Um, well, to be except really... that it's it's not because Chibnall's actually building on things that have occurred in the classic series. So there's a very famous Tom Baker story called "The Brain of Morbius," which was released on VHS as "The Brian of Morbius," which I think is a much better title. And in the brain of Morbius, the Doctor engages in a battle of wills with another exiled Time Lord. And this particular battle of wills allows you to they kind of trade regenerations. So if you lose, you end up going all the way back to the beginning of your regenerative cycle and you die. And as the Doctor is fighting Morbius, you he starts going back. So you get to Pertwee and then Troughton and then Hartnell. And then suddenly there are three or four other faces in that list, which aren't Morbius's faces. They're the doc- they appear to be earlier incarnations of the Doctor we've never seen before. And so Chibnall's basically been building on little hints like that in the show's history, because the show has mm. never been consistent with its canon at all, and gone, well, actually, this has kind of already been admitted to, so I'm just going to make something of it. So, yeah, it seemed like a big swerve at the time, but avid watchers of the show were going, oh, oh, you're connecting a lot of dots, and suddenly, suddenly this isn't quite the big swerve that people are making it out to be after all. Mm. Oh, how about that? Well, I think... um... As, as we have said numerous times in the past, any excuse to rail on about popular culture is something we will grab in both fists. And we've done so, and I think we've sort of, we're, we're, we're at around the, um, the limits of a regular episode and possibly the limits of our audience's patience, I don't know. Uh, and I don't see anything else in our list that we're going to talk about, so shall we, um, shall we just bring things to a close? I think we shall. Very well. Well, then, of course, we should mention that um, after this, we're going to talk about uh, other things probably not related to popular culture in the bonus episode for our patrons. Um, We're going to talk about Mars. We're going to talk about the Gulf War. We're going to talk about Paul Joseph Watson, because I guess we have to. Um, We should at least mention him. We should should mention him, yeah. Uh, and and I don't know, possibly any other bits that we could have mentioned this episode but forgot to at the time, I don't know. Uh, so if you would like to hear about possibly Mars, the Iraq War, or Paul Joseph Watson and recent developments concerning them, uh, then you want to be one of our patrons. If you are, 
jolly good. If you're not, go to patreon.com and search for the podcast This Guy Into the Conspiracy and you can sign yourself up for as little as a dollar a week. That's a New Zealand dollar too, isn't it? So that's like... Well, no, no, no. It's, it's, like it's, it's, it's even better than that, Josh. It's a dollar a month. A dollar a month. That's what I meant. Yes. Uh, it's, it's bugger all is what I'm saying. So go for it. Uh, or not, because, you know, once again... You've listened all the way to the end of an episode, and um, j- just bless you for that. That's quite, quite enough. Quite enough, I think. And I suspect many uh, people listening are going, yes, that is quite enough. It really is. Yep. So before things go on any further, I'm just going to abruptly bring them to a close uh, in my usual way of saying goodbye. Durango. The podcaster's guide to the conspiracy is Josh Addison and me, Dr. MRX Dentist. You can contact us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider supporting the podcast via our Patreon. And remember, Soylent Green is meeples.